0: Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. This must be one of the most bizarre headlines of recent times. Coronavirus may vanish too fast for vaccine trial. It almost seems as if they want the disease to stay around so they can rush out a vaccine. The headline related to a report that was originally in the Telegraph newspaper that scientists at the Oxford Laboratory where coronavirus vaccines are being produced for a planned release this September are facing a big problem. The professor leading the trial told The Telegraph that cases of COVID-19 are disappearing so fast in the UK that out of the 10,000 volunteers lined up to test the vaccine, he expects fewer than 50 to catch the virus. The professor said, It's a race against the virus disappearing and against time. We're in the bizarre position of wanting COVID to stay, at least for a little while, but cases are declining. The fact that this is seen as a problem seems to me a sign of how warped our society has become. We're seeing the most unprecedented removal of our liberties and civil rights in the UK and in many other countries, with people being fined for sitting on a park bench or sunbathing. And this is all supposedly to protect us from a disease which, going by World Health Organization numbers, has a fatality rate similar to a bad season of influenza. Why are people still cheering on the lockdown? The refusal to let us travel around and get on with business in our own country. Kerry-Ann Mendoza, who is a very intelligent journalist and political commentator, posted a tweet on the 25th of May which said... So now Boris Johnson is reopening England, despite clear indications a second wave is upon us. I cannot find the words for the evil afoot here. Evil. I can think of a few choice words to say about Boris Johnson, but evil does seem an extreme way to describe this move. There have been reports that a couple of hospitals in England have seen an increase in coronavirus admissions recently. But is that really a good reason to keep the country under effect of house arrest? People seem to have an excessive terror of disease this, these days. Or maybe it's more that we're primed to panic about anything that the mainstream media tells us to panic about, whether it's the weather or Russians spreading misinformation. Our lives have become massively more safe than they were just a few generations ago. We live much longer, healthier lives, although that is beginning to change due to diseases like type 2 diabetes and dementia. Those are the ones that I think we should really be worried about. The workplace is much safer than it used to be, and few of us alive today in the Western world have lived through the kind of wars that our ancestors had to fight in, whether they wanted to or not. It's almost as if we've got to a stage where we're so comfortable that we've actually forgotten that we're all going to die eventually. It's good to have a self-protective urge not to take reckless risks. But when you're scared to step out of your front door for fear of a disease that might have a 0.06% chance of killing you, and even that seems to be exaggerated, but that's another subject, I would personally call that a fear of life itself or an irrationality. However, I don't think many people see it this way because they've been panicked into seeing COVID-19 as something much more dangerous. I know that Kerry-Ann Mendoza is not the only one to have used this kind of hyperbole at the idea of people being allowed to get on with their lives again. We seem to be subject to a mass anxiety perpetrated by the national media. I think it's the way that the media presents things. Just the words global pandemic conjure up images of plagues of the past, the Black Death, typhoid and cholera, which were very real terrors for our ancestors. And sadly, they still are for people in some parts of the world today. There are many diseases that caused horrific amounts of death and trauma a few centuries ago. But these days, in developed countries, they are no more of a threat than being struck by lightning. And in many cases, that's due to massively improved public sanitation, better living conditions and better nutrition, as well as modern medicine. It wasn't until the late 19th century that people began to realise that typhoid and cholera were spread by water. So although there are vaccines for typhoid and cholera that most people get when they travel to parts of the world that are still affected by these diseases, it was the improvement of the public water supply that was really responsible for eradicating these diseases in the developed world. I've said before in this series that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have my vaccinations when I travel abroad. But I do think these improvements to public hygiene, water systems and general living conditions are often overlooked when we consider the diseases that used to ravage the population in previous centuries. Even malaria used to be common in the United States and Europe. And it was eliminated due to various factors in these areas, including the draining of wetland areas that were breeding grounds for mosquitoes and improvements in sanitation. So modern medicine has certainly made huge contributions to public health, but it's not the only factor. I remember studying the Black Death in history at school and at university. It was a bubonic plague that raged through Europe in 1347 to 1348, killing a third of the European population. And it hit London again in 1665-66, to 66, killing 100,000 people. Bubonic plague is such a gruesome disease that it still haunts people, with images of mass graves and homes being quarantined so that the people living with plague victims could not escape and they were themselves likely to get the disease. I remember years ago being shocked when I found out that people still get the bubonic plague because I thought of it as one of the horrors of the distant past, like witch burning. But apparently between 2010 and 2015, there were 3,248 cases of bubonic plague in the world, with 584 deaths. Bubonic plague tends to be confined to areas of poor sanitation, and it can be treated with antibiotics. In fact, there was a severe outbreak of bubonic plague in India in 1994, the year before I visited the country. Yet I was completely unaware of it at the time. It just wasn't headline news. Vaccines don't work well for bubonic plague. But it's no longer a disease that threatens developed countries. So it doesn't make the news. Reading about the Great Plague of London in 1665-66, Wikipedia says London at that time consisted of a city of about 448 acres surrounded by a city wall. In the poorer parts of the city, hygiene was impossible to to maintain in the overcrowded tenements and garrets. There was no sanitation and open drains flowed along the centre of winding streets. The cobbles were slippery with animal dung, rubbish and the slops thrown out of the houses, muddy and buzzing with flies in summer and awash with sewage in winter. The city corporation employed rakers to remove the worst of the filth and it was transported to mounds outside the walls where it accumulated and continued to decompose. The stench was overwhelming and people walked around with handkerchiefs or nosegays pressed against their nostrils. Carts, carriages, horses and pedestrians were crowded together and the gateways in the wall formed bottlenecks through which it was difficult to progress the 19-arch London Bridge was even more congested. The better-off used hackney carriages and sedan chairs to get to their destinations without getting filthy, and those hackney carriages were uh, not the taxis we know today, they were horse-drawn carriages. Another hazard was the choking black smoke belching forth from factories and from about 15,000 houses burning coal. Outside city walls, there were shanty towns with wooden shacks and no sanitation. And in the city, there were some vacant townhouses which had been converted into tenements with different families in every room. These properties were soon vandalised and became rat-infested slums. I think that was also the case in Scotland's big industrial cities, Glasgow and Edinburgh, as well as other cities in England. And it was these filthy and crowded conditions that allowed those terrible diseases to spread. You often hear about outbreaks of typhoid or cholera in war-torn regions or refugee camps where people have to endure poor living conditions. I think the ancestral memory of these terrible plagues still has the power to cause alarm and that's what makes people more panicky about the Covid-19 situation. The most recent great plague was a hundred years ago the Spanish flu, which famously caused more deaths than the, the number of people killed on the battlefield in the First World War. Even before the current coronavirus outbreak, people in the mainstream media were saying we were overdue a great pandemic, as if it was a kind of inevitability. One of the reasons I wasn't particularly concerned about COVID-19, certainly not in the way most of my friends were, is because most people at the time that the Spanish flu broke out, 100 years ago, were totally different from people today in that they were much more undernourished and they had poorer living conditions. Even the wealthiest people from that time didn't have things that we take for granted today, like central heating or supermarkets offering all the food we could possibly need. My grandparents came from poor households in Yorkshire, and I remember when I was a teenager and my grandmother was visiting us. One weekend morning, I got up and made breakfast for myself with two eggs. Grandma was really astonished and she said, Two eggs? We'd only be allowed top of egg. Your great granddad would have the yolk. It was a bit like the old Four Yorkshiremen sketch from John Cleese and Marty Feldman. We used to live in a tiny tumble-down old house with great holes in roof. House? You're looking to have a house. We used to live in one room, 26 of us. All there. No furniture. Half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled in one corner for fear of falling. Room? You were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in corridor. Corridor? I used to dream of living in a corridor. That would have been a palace to us. (laughs) That comedy sketch was based on truth because most people, the ones that weren't written about in the classic Victorian novels, lived very hard lives, and the British Army had difficulty finding men who were fit enough to fight in the First World War. Added to that, the First World War brought so much misery and death. People were traumatised from the events they experienced on the battlefield. Many men were gassed in battle or wounded. And even if they were not wounded, they had to endure such horrendous conditions in the trenches that their immune systems must have been very weak. Their relatives at home were having food shortages caused by blockades. And they were also having the emotional distress of worrying about or grieving for sons, brothers and lovers who were fighting overseas. I think emotional shock, which can can weaken the immune system, is often underestimated as a trigger for disease. It doesn't seem surprising that a contagious disease which caused so many fatalities started spreading in the last year of the First World War, when legions of soldiers would have been living in unsanitary conditions in the trenches. Comparing that terrible tragedy to conditions today, when most of us are incredibly well-fed and living in comparative luxury, seems ludicrous in my opinion. I'm not saying that a, a really deadly pandemic couldn't happen now, But we should realise that things have moved on a lot for most of humanity over the past 100 years. I don't think we should be talking about the next great pandemic being long overdue as if it's some sort of inevitable event, like an active volcano. There are other lessons from history that also seem relevant to this. I learned about the islanders of the South Pacific dying in huge numbers after contact with European missionaries and and traders because they brought diseases like dysentery and measles that the islanders had no resistance to. The South Pacific islanders had been isolated for so long without any contact with people from other lands that they hadn't built up the herd immunity to protect them from diseases that were usually relatively mild, mild in Europeans and Asians. This is another reason why I think it's more important to develop herd immunity than to promote isolation. My mum was born in 1930 and we have some lovely photos of her at the age of about four sitting on a cart horse. It was a coalman's horse. He lived across the road from her family in Yorkshire. Last year, just before she died, she told me that this man and his wife had lost six children in a diphtheria outbreak and then their last son was killed in the Second World War. She didn't say exactly when the outbreak was, but when I did a bit of research online, I found out that there was a diphtheria epidemic in England in 1943, and again that was at the time when the country was at war. People were going through really tough times, and there were food shortages. I hope we never have to endure times like that again. Maybe that's why this whole lockdown strategy seems like an incredible overreaction to me. I grew up hearing about the hardship and suffering that the generation just before mine had gone through. These were not tales of woe. It was just the way that things had been in the old days. I was very ill myself as a child for years, from the age of 18 months. I didn't realise that I was any different from anyone else in this because I thought that everyone got ill. I didn't realise that my childhood illness was more serious than normal until long after I'd recovered. I can see that because COVID-19 is a new virus and when the first reports started coming through from China, no one really knew how it was going to develop, so it did need to be taken seriously. But as it went on, it seemed weird to me that the mainstream media was completely freaking out about it, yet at the same time, the government wasn't even rolling out a testing programme. One of my friends got very ill in February, two days after we'd been out for the evening. It was my birthday and we'd gone out for drinks. When she got ill, she phoned up NHS 24 and she was told that she'd be tested for coronavirus. But then later she was told that they weren't going to give her a test after all. Looking back, it seems likely that she did have COVID-19 as she was ill for seven days with fever and a bad cough. And she also lost her sense of smell and taste. Her partner also got ill. I felt really tired for a few days, but I'd been moving boxes into storage, so I thought it was probably due to that. And I didn't have any other Covid symptoms. So we had an hysterical press on the one hand, acting as if coronavirus was the new great plague. But on the other hand, there was no sensible action. None of the simple steps that could have been taken to protect the most vulnerable. The whole Covid crisis seems to have been handled in the way that you'd expect headless chickens to have handled it if they'd been in charge of the government. In my opinion, that is. And I often wonder what my sensible mother and father would have thought, and my grandparents. My grandmother's remedy for most illnesses was a brisk walk up the hill. That used to drive me mad when I was a sickly child. But I certainly see the sense in it now. Of course, not when you're seriously ill and bedridden. My grandmother, by the way, lived to the age of 93. My mum died last year, at age 89. She got ill last July, a week after she'd returned from a lovely holiday in France with my sister. They stayed in my cousin's house in France and had a lovely relaxing week. They did have a bit of stress on the journey home because there was a strike and delays and crowds. When mum got home she had a cold and over the next week it got worse and she ended up being rushed to hospital with pneumonia. She was in hospital for a few weeks and we were so thankful when she was able to come back home. I became her full-time carer which wasn't really a difficult job. I was cooking for her, helping her with her shopping and giving her lifts in the car. She was very weak for a while and one day when she was out and I was clearing up her room I found a leaflet for an important presentation that my sister was going to be doing in Sweden in November. Mum had been really looking forward to going to Sweden to see the presentation. I felt quite emotional looking at it thinking there's no way she'll be able to go now. When I spoke to my sister I asked her if I should throw the leaflet out. My sister's a doctor And I was quite surprised when she said, no, no, it's a few months away. I think mum might be well enough to go. Mum did get better and she did go to Sweden to see my sister's presentation. My brother-in-law and a cousin looked after her on the trip and they all stayed in a chalet. They had a wonderful time. The daughter of one of mum's best friends was staying there by coincidence in the same town. She's a folk musician and she just happened to be playing a concert that week, so they all went to see it. When they got back to Scotland, Mum just seemed so happy and relaxed. She'd had a wonderful time. She kept telling me how much she'd enjoyed seeing my sister's presentation and how much she'd loved seeing her her friend's daughter's concert. In fact, she told me about it over and over and over again with her eyes shining. And then just over a week later, she had a stroke. She was rushed to hospital. It seemed to be a mild stroke at first, but sadly her condition deteriorated overnight and she died a few weeks later, on Christmas Eve. It was a very upsetting time. After the funeral, after things had calmed down, I started to wonder if the two foreign trips had been too much for Mum. And almost immediately, I thought, I don't think she would have wanted it any other way. She was so looking forward to seeing my sister's presentation. And I think she would have been really miserable if she'd been too, too ill to go. She'd always had a very relaxed and level-headed attitude to life and death. I honestly don't know what mum would have thought about the current coronavirus situation, but both of my parents had the attitude that it was important to get the most out of life, not to sit inside worrying about imagined dangers. And that's the way I see things too. I love hill-walking and climbing, and I tend to take an approach of calculated risk, If I'm doing something that might be dangerous, I think about the risks and do all I can to mitigate them, but I usually stop short of not doing whatever it is. The one thing I cannot imagine ever choosing to do is to lock myself up for fear of what might be outside. If others feel that they have to do that, I'm happy to help them stay safe or feel safe. I agreed to go along with the lockdown initially when we were told it was to stop the NHS from being overwhelmed. I was a bit sceptical, but I didn't want to be arrogant about my way being right. Now we're being told that NHS England won't even be able to provide non-emergency care until the government has the track and trace system fully operational. It's almost like a threat. We've got an Oxford professor saying the virus is disappearing too quickly for the vaccine trials to proceed. We've got scientists all over the world saying the risk from this disease to the under 70s is very small and many of them are being censored or publicly pilloried for daring to question the establishment line. We seem to have an increasing number of politicians and people with a lot of influence in this lockdown caught flouting the very same lockdown rules that they have imposed, clearly indicating that they don't think it's very important. And at the same time, the authorities seem to be grasping onto this pandemic, trying to prolong the incredible fear that's been incited, using that to force through these authoritarian surveillance state measures as quickly as they can before the crisis fizzles out. I personally think this points to corruption at the highest levels of society. I can't say who is corrupt and who has been hoodwinked, but in my opinion there is something very sinister going on. We're being imprisoned by fear. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.